don't want access to the tree of life on gospel terms. They want access to the tree of life on their own terms. They want to snevel their way back into the garden. You are listening to End If Love Remains, a unique show spotlighting people, ideas, science, culture, and art. Your host, Mike Lovett. Mike Lovett. Thank you, Rachel. Welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Lovett, and I have a very special guest with us today, Pastor Douglas Wilson. Doug um, is an author. Um, he's a um, uh, he's a pastor. He's a, a scholar. He runs. Um, he's part of, of two YouTube channels that I really enjoy: uh, Blog and Mayblog, and uh, and Canon Press. Is that is that right, Doug? Yeah. 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 Wonderful. I, and I really encourage people to go check those out on YouTube. He's very insightful on, on, on uh, events that are happening today. And, and um, I, I've really appreciated the work that he's doing. Um, where else can people find you, Doug, if, if they like what they hear today? If the, the best place as a clearinghouse would be my blog, DougWills.com. If they go there, they can pretty much get to anything I do. Okay. Very good. And, and we're going to talk today about um, a book, and, and this comes, um, I saw a lecture that you gave um, several years ago. I, I think it was at Trinity College. Uh, I can't remember now. Um, where, where you discussed the, the Ransom Trilogy by C.S. Lewis, um, and uh, I was so impressed and, and thrilled to have you on to talk about specifically the third book in the trilogy, That Hideous Strength. Um, yeah. talk, talk, to, um, talk to me, talk to us a little bit about um, just kind of your C.S. Lewis, his influence on you, like maybe a little origin story uh, regarding C.S. Lewis and, and Doug Wilson. Uh, sure. Um, so I was, I'm, I'm an old guy. I was born in 1953 and my dad started reading C.S. Lewis Narnia stories to us when I was five. So that would have been 58. And so that was when the books were still um, fresh, still new. So I've sort of um, been, I grew up in Narnia, grew up on Narnia and just loved what I took, uh, took in from that growing up. And then when I was in high school, I started reading some of Lewis's other stuff. And I don't remember when I first read the Ransom uh, trilogy, but they, uh, that hideous strength particularly made a, a real conquest of me. It's the kind of book that I have read. Uh, well, Lewis himself in his book, Experiment and Criticism, says that you measure a book by uh, how many times a reader returns to it, how many times they re- uh, reread it. And uh, by that measure, uh, that hideous strength is one of my top um, books. I've, I've read it probably 14 or 15 times. And, um, and it's the sort of book where if I go for a while without having read it, I need to read it again. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny. And, and if you're not um, really, if you don't know a lot, I mean, I think most people know the Narnia series, you know, I think they a lot, they know some of his apologetic works and things. Um, if, but if you're a, uh, a casual Lewis fan, um, the ransom trilogy, I know for me that that's one that came to me later. And right. um and it's something that that man, it's 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 such 
wonderful writing and and um yeah it, it there's there's so much to it um is it was that some of his earliest writing if is that right well it is um he wrote that habeas strength during the second world war so okay. it was in, in the early 40s probably 43 or thereabouts and that was right around the same time that he delivered um the lectures that became his book the abolition of man and the abolition of man and that hideous strength were produced right around the same time and he says in the uh, preface of that hideous strength that that he was making the same basic point that he was making in both books so uh, this these issues were on his mind shall we say yeah and and so he uh, he wrote his first Christian book, The Pilgrim's Regress, uh, in the 30s. Uh, so this was, and he died in 1963. So in probably in the first third of his Christian writing career. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, the, the so so uh, let's, let's talk about, about the book in context of the, of the Ransom Trilogy, just to, get, again, give people some context. Um, sure. They, they, uh, it's different than the other two books. And I, I, and I think about this as, as I was going through it again, getting kind of getting ready for, for our chat. Um, you know, it's, it's so different. It almost feels like he may have, you know, written that first and then added the other two to give background. I mean, it's, it's such a, it's, it's like the book in the series, what the series was meant to be written for. And yet, um, yeah, I'm curious what you know about that or what you think about that. Sure, sure. Um, it chronologically it happened the other way. He wrote it. He wrote that out of the Silent Planet, which is a, a sort of a traditional science fiction book from that era uh, by a Christian. Uh, he wrote that first, uh, where Ransom, the lead protagonist, is abducted and taken to Mars, and then his second book, Paralandra. Is uh, occurs on Venus, uh, which is the temptation of the first couple there on Venus. And when you get to the third book, which occurs here on Earth, uh, there's a radical atmospherics shift, right? Right. Uh, it's it's just very very different, and it's I think it's different for uh, uh, more than one one more than one reason. Um, in with um, Malacandra and uh, Paralandra, <coughs> with Out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra, the worlds or the races there are unfallen. They're, you're not dealing with sin, really. You're dealing with the temptation to sin on Paralandra, but they're not fallen worlds. Uh, when you get to uh, this world, our world is very much fallen, very much broken, uh, all messed up, all messed up, right? And that's one major tone shift. Each planet is under the influence of an Oyarsa, an angelic power. And the and Malachandra and Paralandra, those angelic powers are are wonderful and unfallen. Uh, the the Oyarsa over our planet is the devil, basically. Um, and that contributes to the the darkness of the of the book. Uh, and then there's another element that comes in that's very different, and that's the result of the influence of a man named Charles Williams. So uh, 
Charles Williams was an editor for Oxford University Press, and he worked in London. And during the, during the Second World War, because of the bombing, Charles Williams was moved out to Oxford uh, to get away from the bombing so he could do his work there. And when he moved to Oxford, he there met Lewis and had a profound influence on Lewis. So all the Arthurian stuff, Merlin, um, all of that is the influence of Charles Williams, who was very much in, very much into that. And uh, that element wasn't really uh, Tolkien's. Tolkien was a good friend of Lewis. And the Merlin stuff, Arthurian stuff, was not really Tolkien's cup of tea. Because for someone like Tolkien, that was way too recent, almost modern times. <laughs> Yeah, almost modern times. Right. But, but uh, Arthur and that whole thing is a is a major key um, plot element in that hideous strength. And that was all the contribution of Charles Williams, who was there because of the bombing in London because of the war. Interesting. That's wild. And and that that whole it's funny, that whole aspect of the book. Um doesn't he doesn't he say that it, it um well, it gives it that that fairy tale quality that he kind of talks about making a, a modern, you know, adult fairy tale, um, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and kind of takes us into that other otherworldly place. Um, uh, very, very much so. Yeah. And so he, he he takes us back to the age of Merlin, but he takes us back to the age of Merlin and also the cosmology of that was extant during that time. So right. that's what. And that's what uh, that's what gives it its ethereal otherworldliness, which is really interesting. I, I had uh, um, a, a little while back. I had uh, Professor Michael Ward on, and we talked about his book and and the the Seven Heavens and and, and Narnia, and um, you know that that idea of of bringing in that cosmology and that whole idea of um, how how ancient people saw their place in the world and saw the, even the earth's place in, in this fallen Christian world, how that applies to um, this, this mod, you know, right. mid 20th, 20th century Edgewood or Edgestone. Um, I, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this book is, is um, the, oh, I, 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 for some reason I put this, somewhat in the same category as kind of the dystopians 1984 a brave new world um but it's it's i almost think of it as um we have a uh uh in 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 libraries there's a section of his uh historical fiction and i think of this as almost like futuristic fi fiction or, <laughs> or prophetic fiction or something like that and yeah. and i think of that hideous strength in that same kind of 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 realm um, but it's but it's more like where those books take place, you know, years or centuries or, or sometime after the change, the dystopian change happens. This is like leading up to that. This is the the the, pre the preface to that those moments. Right. It's, it's you're on the front porch of a dystopia. Right. So, so with um, with most of the people in England at the time that this adventure is happening, they're just going about their regular lives that they always have. And you get glimpses of that when the, uh, when Mark Studdick, the 
one of the protagonists goes to a little village called Cure Hardy that the bad guys are planning to live. All the people there are just going about their ordinary lives, not assuming that anything bad or nefarious is going on. So it's not Brave New World. It's not 1984. It's not Blade Runner or anything like that. It's just ordinary England. But the bad guys are on the very threshold of introducing a dystopia. And so the battle is this grappling on the edge of the cliff to head off the dystopia. And it, you, you can very clearly see what they would in, introduce if they were successful. But it's not a fait accompli. It's not done. Yeah. Um, what's um, the... the uh, So let, let's... Oh, so one last kind of preface before we get into some of the themes. Um, the... Uh, um, the title itself, that hideous strength. Um, uh, I understand that that comes from a, a poem about the Tower of, of Babel. Is that right? That's that is correct. There's a Scottish, a Scottish poet who, in the 15 or 1600s, somewhere in that neighborhood, wrote a poem about the Tower of Babel, and says that the shadow of that hideous strength, I think, ran almost six miles, something like that. Just so. Uh, it's the shadow of the Tower of Babel. That's the reference. And and why is that? Why is that the key to understanding? I really do think that, that understanding that reference is the key to understanding this book. Um, I mean, in in some ways, <laughs> this book seems so prophetic. But in other ways, it's almost like he rewrote the he wrote rewrote the Bible story and said, "What what would it be like if we put the Tower of Babel here? What would that look like in a modern setting?" And right. uh, and, and because of that, it seems prophetic. Yeah, very much so. Because outside of Christ, basically what it boils down to is outside of Christ, unbelievers are always back to the tree of life. You know, they, they don't want access to the tree of life <coughs> Excuse me, on gospel terms. They want access to the tree of life on their own terms. They want to snivel their way back into the garden. They want to take partake of that fruit and so the the flood was um was brought about uh, the bad pun is the flood was precipitated by um uh, the bad guys uh trying to reach for eternal life by uh, the sons of god in intermarrying with the daughters of men and, right. there were Neph- and there were nephilim in those days what they're trying to do and then god says i will not contend with man forever for he is mortal so his days will be 120 years um, and I think that that's the, the warning, how long it's going to be until the flood. Okay. So, yeah. so God, but it's clear that God is warning them. He's mortal. I'm not going to contend. I'm not going to put up with this because man is mortal. So you see that men are striving for immortality. They're living for centuries before the flood, but that's still, still that's mortal. Like, right. It's not good enough. And that's not good enough. They, they want eternal life. And they want it on their own terms. And then God strikes them and um, destroys the world with the flood. And after the flood, the same effort happens again on the plains of Shinar with the building of the Tower of Babel. Uh, we, don't want our, we don't want to spread all over. We want to concentrate our, our forces here. We want to build a great empire, the empire of man. And God sees what they're doing, and he comes down and confuses their language, 
which is a little foretaste of what he does in the banquet at Belbury in that hideous mm-hmm. strength. Right? So uh, it's, you've got basically unregenerate, ungodly, evil men reaching for the stars and God intervening by striking their language. Yeah, and we're 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 jumping back and forth, and I love it because I just I just finished that section, and and it made me think of um, a question I I I have, I guess, uh, you know, is why 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 was it that the curse was you know the 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 uh, changing of the um, the languages? Why why was that so terrible? And um, or or you know why did that stop all progression and I, I realized um, in reading this book that the the culture in uh, the the NICE the, the the bad guys the the guys that are trying to to um, introduce um, these <laughs> satanic policies um, and and take over the world and, and and go to heaven on their own terms you know when the the culture that they had is one of, of fear and murder and and um, you know complete distrust. And so, of course, when you have a, a, a true crisis, not a man-made crisis, but a true crisis that happens, there's, n- there's no way you can communicate. There's, there's no way that you can get out of a situation like that, uh, you know, outside right. of a miracle. Right. You can't. The, everything rests upon manipulation and using words to manipulate. And uh, that's taken away from them. Their, their, one, their one weapon, that of lying, is removed from them. That's well said. That's exactly yeah, absolutely. What um, uh, so let's talk about the the two kind of parallel groups that that are in that are, that are inside of that hideous strength, uh, the NICE and then the group at Saint Anne's. Who were these people, and and why were they in such opposition to each other? Okay, yeah. So you have two armies, if you want to call them that, two two forces. Uh, the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments is the NICE. And these are the bad guys who are trying to take over the world. And then you have the company at St. Anne's. St. Anne's is a manor house that Ransom, the protagonist of the first two books, has inherited. And he's also inherited a, uh, an office that he didn't hold in the first two books. And that is the office of the Pendragon. Um, so there's been a secret Ar- Arthurian government that has been with England, Britain, down through the centuries. And uh, Ransom is summoned to an old man's house. He's on his deathbed, and he's, he's given the office of Pendragon. So Ransom is in this uh, manor house at St. Anne's, and a company starts to gather around him. And it's a real ragtag little company of people. Uh, including an agnostic skeptic, uh, a woman who's a medical doctor, um, uh, Dr. Dimble and his wife, uh, you know, just a handful of people, and a bear. There's a bear, bear. that's there. Right. <laughs> a bear that's there. Who plays so, a major role. It's quite... You know, <laughs> yes. Uh, and so, so you've got this motley group uh, at St. Anne's that is the... Um, is the force that's going to stand against this attempt at a global takeover. All right, so um, those are the two companies. Now, um, you may be planning to ask about this already, but to, to, to peek ahead a little bit, uh, 
the, the two protagonists are an, uh, a newly married couple, married less than a year, um, Mark and Jane Studdick. Okay, Mark and Jane Studdick. And the what happens is Mark Studdick is recruited by the nice, by the bad guys, and uh, Jane Studdick uh, finds herself connected with the company at St. Anne's. So this unhappily married couple is divided, and they are each respectively in the orbit of the warring companies, the warring parties. Yeah. Uh, to and, and then to complicate it, neither neither Mark nor Jane are believers. They're, neither one are Christian, and Mark has um, been afflicted his whole life with a ravenous lust to be included. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote a, an essay one time called The Inner Ring, uh, where he talks about this lust. And this book is sort of a full-length treatment of, of what that lust to be included does to you. Yeah. So, so Mark always wants to get into the inner circle. He, he's, a, uh, he's a professor at the college there at Edstow. He wants to get in with the progressive element. Then he wants to get in with the people at Nice. Then when he gets to Nice, he wants to get into the, the ring at Nice. And and so he's being drawn on, uh, enticed by his lust to be included. And his point, uh, he gets converted in the course of the story. And, and it's telling that because of his lust to be included as his besetting sin, his moment of conversion is when he rebels against all of that. Right. All right. So he's in a place called the objective room and they're trying to induct him into their society. And part of the induction is he has to trample on a crucifix, which he refuses to do. So he rebels against that. By the way. And I love, I love that scene so much. Like yeah, it, yes. it's so well thought through because it, because he's sitting there and he's just, you could tell like, Part of him just wants to do it and get over with. And then he just thinks about like, who, you know, wait a sec. This was a real person. He, he like realizes that even if I don't believe in, in Jesus, you know, as God and creator and my savior, I believe him, you know, that he was a real person. And here's this guy and I'm supposed to just, just jump on him for no reason. Like, it's just such a beautiful moment that happens. Oh, oh it's, it's really, it's really beautiful. Um, and then Jane, on for her part, her phobia has she doesn't want to be taken in. She doesn't want to be absorbed. She doesn't want to submit herself or give herself away or give herself up. That's why she's postponed motherhood and all you know. So right. she's very prickly and standoffish, and she wants to be with the nice people at St. Anne's, but she doesn't want to join them, right? And her moment of conversion is when she finally submits. So. His moment of conversion is when he finally rebels like a man. And her moment of conversion is when she finally submits like a woman. Right. There's, there's a, um, oh, oh, <laughs> I, I, I lost my train of thought a little bit, but, but the, the Jane, um, it's very interesting to me that, 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 that she submits not just, um, not just to the 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 director, the Pendragon, or God. Like she actually, they they insist that she that she submit to her 
uh, still unbelieving, probably going to go against her idea as husband. Um, I mean, there's this whole, it, again, the, 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 the contrast, the, the mirror image of the two groups are so striking where, where uh, you know, the NICE is using lies and manipulation to keep Mark in. Um, the, the group at St. Anne's are, um, are not pushing her away, lovingly tell, you know, put, uh, showing her how to comply and how to submit. So why why do you think um, uh, I mean these two these two peoples I mean persons are 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 I think very very modern I mean I think I can re I I said I can relate to Mark I think I think a lot of women can relate to Jane today um, what is it about modern society um, that J Jane and Mark both find um, uh, not uh, not in coordination with with reality or or, or what why does it why does it why do they realize it's it's not working for them um basically uh w what brings mark to his senses is his he realizes um how lovely normal is and uh what lewis is doing in his other book the abolition of man is he's describing how relativistic modern and postmodern philosophy doesn't just result in the loss of the Christian faith. It results in the loss of our humanity because uh, relativism is a corrosive acid that eats out any container you try to keep it in. Right? So you can't just keep the acids of, um, um, uh, the acids of relativism and here, and I, I can come back at any time and be as relativistic as I please, uh, the acids of relativism will eat up absolutely everything, including your ability to be relativistic. <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it becomes a circular argument. Of yeah, so the, the ultimate bad guys, um, Frost and Wither, who are the, the honchos at the NICE, um, he describes when when there when it finally gets to the end of the you know their destruction, um, he describes how they got there philosophically, all the different schools of thought that they went through, and how they came to at the at the end, not believing that they were human at all. Mm -hmm. Right. This is the abolition of man, right? And right. when Mark and when Mark is being allured or tempted in that direction it's the inner ring he's being allured by the the temptation to join the inner ring of people who are not really human at all they've abandoned that they've given it up there's no such thing as human anymore right and the thing that causes him to revolt and and is the normal things like the smell of bacon and eggs and the memory of his wife and and normal people doing normal things um he he reverts. He defaults back to factory settings. In other yeah. words, we we are creatures, and we're meant to be creatures. We're meant to live like creatures. We are not these abstract reasoning machines that destroy our ability to think. Yeah, the uh, that is interesting. The 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 reasoning ourselves into oblivion. I mean, it even goes so far as as 
um, you know, uh, saying that th- that the perfect world would like would look like look like the moon with no vegetation, nothing on it. Yeah, you know, a, a true hatred of organic life. Right. And, and and the thing is amazing, you know. So uh, Lewis postulates that there's a race of beings and uh, on the moon, um, and there's a war, good guys and bad guys, and they're warring. And he he explains that the bad guys uh, are having sex with robots, basically, and that's how they and that's how they conceive their children because they're so fastidious and so averse to organic life that they won't have normal human sex, normal sexual relations. Right. And I think, okay, so Lewis is writing in the 1940s for crying out loud. And he's, he's predicting uh, a number of the demented things that people are attempting now with the, you know, it's just amazing. It it is, it is absolutely amazing. And, and I even think about uh, um, the, the, you know, the head, (laughs) <laughs> yes and it, it, to me it is so uh, so so um you know and again so a lot i i call 2020 2021 the the years of clarity um because yeah. Is, yeah. you know we've really we've really seen i think a, a true divide between you know people of honest heart and, and people that are trying to manipulate any situation yes. um and and you see this i think it, it's funny the the um the scientists at at uh, at the NICE, they um, you know they they consider themselves such rational, you know, logical. You know, again, they can reason them, their way into oblivion, and yet and yet they 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 find themselves literally worshiping a head of a demon, <laughs> and it's 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 an insane it's an insane scene to to see these these quote rational people doing completely insane things. Right. And, and Lewis makes the point in The Abolition of Man, again, these books are parallel, uh, he says that scientism and magic were born in the same neighborhood in the same hour. And so chemists and alchemy are twins. Okay. And, uh, and so he says that this, uh, so Lewis is at pains to say he's not against real science, uh, you know, rigorous science, objective science. But he is against the worldview that many people have adopted in the name of science, which you could call scientism. And right. that, sci- that scientism, he shows in that hideous strength, at the end of the day, is indistinguishable from magic. Right? Yes. So um, scientism is, at the end of the day, devil worship. The absolute, and that's and that's the thing. It's 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 you when you get to the bottom of it. When you get to the bottom of it, there's always going to be a, a metaphysical reality that has to be dealt with. Um, right. wh- whether you know it's you call them macrobes or angels, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, or whether you you know at, at, or devils, you know, at some point um, you get to the and, and I see I see that even to and I see that in today's science, you know, you see. Um, uh, the the things that we're doing with with the human genome and and you've seen things that that mm-hmm. you know the 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 virus or the the vaccine for this virus that the, you know right. it, it like we are doing crazy things in the name that 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 gets that what am I trying to say undermines the the um, the natural sciences and what what God has really provided for us to to be to learn what He's done for us right. 
Um, I, you know, and, and I do appreciate like honest hearts. Um, I think about uh, uh, like people like Brett Weinstein, Weinstein um, you know, the uh, dark horse and those guys, you know, who are not Christian, they're, they're atheists, <laughs> but, um, but they're honest scientists who say, wait, there's a real problem in science. And, and it's us Christians that are saying, well, yeah, we've been saying that, you know, yeah. <laughs> welcome to the club. Yeah, um, yeah. First time, first time. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, talk, let's talk about Merlin. He's a fascinating character. It seems at first he'd be an oddball character, but he absolutely is important. Why? What is Merlin's role in this? Yeah. This crazy. So, work? Let's not, before talking about his role, let's not forget the fact that he's just simply fun. Right. <laughs> right. He is. He, he he enters the story, and it's a wonderful juxtaposition, enabling you to view or note things about. 20th century life that would be flabbergasting to someone like Merlin. <laughs> right. right? It, it's, a, um, it's, a, it's a fun exercise. It's a worlds in collision uh, fun exercise. Sort of like taking, taking the Apostle Paul on a plane ride, you know? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so there's that element. It's just simply fun. Oh, and uh, his, his reaction to, you know, the, you know, to Ransom's quote servants is hilarious. I mean, there's so many funny things about it. Yes, exactly. Um, now when, when the good guys, when the, the bad guys at nice and the good guys are both looking for Merlin. Okay. They, and they both know that he's going to be a key element uh, in whatever is going to happen. But nobody knows why. Neither side knows why. The um, bad guys think that they are hunting for a wicked magician who will join forces with them and will lend his power to their efforts. That's what they assume. And the good guys assume the same thing. They know that they're to be looking for Merlin, but they're trying to keep Merlin, the bad guy, from joining forces with the bad guys. And then when they find him, or when, rather I should say, when he finds them, um, they find out that Merlin is a Christian. And the assumption that he was going to be a wicked magician was ill-founded, and that Merlin was meant to team up with the good guys and reinforce their purposes and their plans. So uh, that's, that's the key role. And so Merlin, and, and what it boils down to is because it's a modern, it's a modern story with demons and angels uh, involved in it. And the nice, I've opened themselves up to demonic influence. The good guys are not permitted to open themselves up to angelic powers in the same way. Because it, as, um, as Ransom says to Merlin, back in your day, it was never quite lawful, even in your time. It was, it was kind of yeah. dodgy. It was kind of dodgy and walking the line right. in Merlin, Merlin's day. It was still possible to do it back then and be a Christian. Uh, it was sort of like polygamy. You know, yeah. it, it, was, it was possible, but even there, you, it, you were running a risk back then none of the modern good guys would be in a position to open themselves up to possession by the Oyarsu, the planetary influences. Uh, Merlin was 
because of his uh, previous traffic, his previous uh, pattern of behavior, he, he was able to do that and not risk uh, damning his soul as a result. So he, he's sort of a prime specimen. And, uh, and if, you're, um, if you don't want spoilers, I guess I'm just kind of spoiling this. But, um, I think it's okay. I'm, uh, I'm hoping that people will read. There's a lot in there to read, so right. spoil away. <laughs> so, um, so Merlin is someone that the uh, – see, the bad guys have, with a spaceship, taken – when they kidnapped Ransom and took him to Mars in the first book, they sort of broke the seal. They, the, the, in the solar system, there was a deal that the forces of deep heaven would not come down to Earth and so Earth was under a quarantine. And the bad guys thought that they were guarded or they were in a safe house because of that. But because they took a spaceship up to Mars, they broke the seal, which meant the deal was off, mm-hmm. which, meant, which meant that the good guy angels could come down to Earth. And what they do is they come down and inhabit Merlin and, then, uh, and give him all their power. So all their power is now resident in, in a human being. And then he, he goes to, um, uh, he goes to uh, the banquet at Belbury uh, to be an interpreter for the Merlin that the bad guys thought they found, which was a homeless guy. So they, uh, when Merlin comes back from his sleep, he takes the clothes of a bum and goes to the company at St. Anne's and the naked bum is found by the bad guys and they think he's Merlin. Right. And, and so they take him to their headquarters and um, he doesn't speak any English. Um, well, he does, but he won't. And so they keep, they keep assuming that he's Merlin. And so um, the real Merlin comes to serve as an interpreter for the fake Merlin. And from that position wrecks all kinds of havoc on the bad guys. Yeah. It, it it's it's I I just imagine Lewis just having a ball writing some of these scenes. Um yeah. and that one is that one in particular at the banquet. I mean, it is it is fantastic and I just it, I just imagine him like giggling at some of the stuff he's writing. It's so great. Yeah. It's it's really is a satisfying scene. Yeah. Um I think another character I, it says he seems to have fun with um, is one is uh, 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 Fairy Heart Hardcastle. Um, yes, just yes. a unique, <laughs> crazy, I guess, lady. Um, uh, you know yeah. who uh, uh, you know who runs the security at nice, and and she's a she, wow, she's a whopper. Whoa, right, <laughs> she's a piece of work. Yes, um, and and this is a good and uh, is a sort of a flaming. Uh, butch lesbian and again this is something that Lewis was calling out prepping us for back in the 1940s Yeah, Um, and that was pretty edgy for him to be writing about that kind of thing back then or or her her squad of female police officers I mean the whole thing is (laughs) yeah pretty edgy and, 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 and you know not you know a few decades before his time Right, right. Yeah. What? Um. Uh. One of the things about about Mark and, and Jane, um, 
that I find interesting is um, Jane, um, what draws her to St. Anne's are these dreams that she's having. And it's very interesting as she's, as she um, makes decisions, she doesn't understand at any point why she's doing the things that she's doing. It's almost like, I don't know why I did this, but I just drove, I told the person to drive me to St. Anne's. Um, And there's, there's, a bunch of different places like that where, where she instinctively moves in that direction without um, and, and would not have made that decision in, other than we call it the spirit of God, I guess. And, um, and Mark kind of over intellectualizes his way into nice. It's, it's again, these kind of polar opposite things that, that, that you're these mirrors that you refer to. Right. That's a good way of describing it. Uh, Mark is in the grip of a series of bad arguments um, that that rationalize his lust, and uh, and Jane simply wants to be with the nice people and gravitates with the peop- the the nice the not the N I C E people but the right. the uh, kind people. She just wants to be with the kind people and gravitates toward them, but doesn't want to surrender herself. But she keeps finding herself taking refuge there. Yeah, uh, um, and and why and and the other thing that um, I think is interesting about that couple is, um, you know, the NICE are really they're they're after Mark, but they're after Mark. If I read this correctly, they're after Mark because. Uh, because of Jane, because she's having these visions, and 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 they're worried that she's going to. Um, expose them, right? Their their primary goal is they, their primary goal is to get Jane because of her um, sec- abilities with second sight. Basically, she she has visions, she has dreams that are actual and real, and so they, that's their prime goal. We need Jane. Uh, Mark is perhaps useful and interesting to them in a secondary way. Um, he is a candidate for them to include in their inner circle to to uh, initiate and bring on board, but that's not the main reason they're after them. They they want to use Mark to get Jane. Yeah. Um, what um, you know, you said you you've gone to this book um, many times. What what to you? Um, maybe the, let me just ask you a simple question here. What's your what do you maybe what's a favorite passage, a favorite part that you have that that you enjoy? Um, in this book? Uh, man, that's really hard. I probably um, like uh, the Mark's rebellion in the objective room the best because he's such, um, he's so pliable all the way through the book. And he finally takes a stand as a, as a man, someone with a backbone. And, uh, it's just really good. Uh, I, I love that scene. I yeah. also I love the banquet at Belbury where Jules, the the figurehead of um, of the nice, it, when his language is garbled and he says, "Hey, watch your bull, dude." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, uh, I I really like that. I really like that scene. Um, uh, the um, the and that, that, that's probably my two, two favorite. Okay. Well, um, 
uh, oh, I just had a, um, so one of the, so, oh, this is again, again, why I love Lewis and I would not put this book in the same exact category as 1984 Brave New World as a dystopian novel is he does bring great, great, immense hope. And um, I think if there is one theme to the book is that God is in charge. And as long, and it's, it's more about what team are we going to be on as opposed to what's going to happen and, and, you know, having faith in, in, in because it, it, every single decision that the nice makes while seems practical and um, seems like it's going to work um, and almost seems um, inevitable. Um, right. And as I think it was uh, uh, McPhee who says, you know, what did we just do but feed pigs and, and, you know, wait, <laughs> you know, and grow you some know, very, very decent vegetables. We grew some right, very decent vegetables. Right. right. Um, but, um, but in the end it was, it was God uh, manifesting or, or, or working his will through this whole situation. And, uh, right. and that's why I think this book is so important for today because it, it can get quite disheartening seeing what's happening in Ukraine and Russia and here in America for the, for, you know, ever. Um, and trying to, you know, see how God works in, and, and even turning the, the, what seems like, um, practical and, and, and iniv- inevitable ideas on its head. Right. And, and quietly in the background, you see that God's providential working uh, resists successfully um, what the bad guy, the, the great, great, shiny, grandiose plans of the evildoers. They've got this big institute. They've, They've captured all the governments of men. And you've got this, the, and what is the resistance? Um, the resistance is this obscure uh, company at St. Anne's. You know, right. s- some women and a bear and you know, a handful of people. And one of the great takeaway lessons that I've learned, well, let me jump to another book for a minute and come back, because it's the same lesson. Yeah. Um, and that is, uh, at the end of the Lord of the Rings, when Frodo and Sam are basically crawling up the side of Mount Doom, um, the the whole setup is Sauron is among the mighty of the earth, and he is overthrown basically by a couple of uh, foot sore, grimy, wasted, fried hobbits. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and he's overthrown. So what they do is glorious. That, you know, the fact that they even got there uh, cl- close enough to throw the ring into Mount Doom is, uh, is just amazing. But for, for Sauron, he thinks that he doesn't understand, Sauron doesn't understand the nature of good and evil. Uh, yeah. be- because uh, he thinks, well, it, he, he suspects and thinks that the ring has come into the possession of his enemies, the good guys, which it has. Yeah. Um, but the whole, it never occurs to Sauron that that could happen and them not use it. Okay. Yeah. Right. He, he thinks that they think That's about, right. he thinks that they think about power the same way he does. But the, but the whole book and, and some people who are concerned about the Lord of the Rings 
as having too much magic in it. It's actually a profoundly anti-magic book because you, you have this ultimate magical talisman, the ring of power, to bind yeah. all the rings. And it comes into the possession of the good guys. And, and instead of them saying, hey, white magic after all, you know, instead of them saying that, everybody, right. uh, the whole book is all about them resisting the urge to use it. Okay? Yes. Um, yes. Gandalf refuses the ring. Elrond refuses the ring. Uh, Galadriel refuses the ring. Faramir refuses the ring. Um, uh, Bormir doesn't refuse it, and that's his failure. That's his fall, right? Yeah. Everybody on the good guy's side is is tempted to use the ring. Frodo fail, you know, fails at the last minute, but resists right. it the whole time. Um, and so you've got uh, this setup where the good guys don't think about power the way the bad guys think about power. Right now, jump back to the, that hideous strength. There's a scene, and I should I should add this to one of my favorite scenes as well. Um, this is the third, is when Fairy Hardcastle has Mark Stedek tailed going into the college, and there are only three people he could have gone to see, and yes. and she has, but she only has two men available to tail those three to see where they went, and and so there are three three men. One of them is Dimble. Dimble is actually really part of the company in Saint Anne's. And she says, except that he's a Christian, there's nothing really much against him. The other two are Christians and are movers and shakers on the Christian side. And she, she makes this comment, um, uh, if it, you know, except that he's a Christian, uh, there's not, you know, except that he's a Christian, uh, he's, he's a real danger and a hazard. But if he weren't a Christian, we could find use for a man like with those talents on our side. Right. Right. So it's what you have there is Fairy Hardcastle thinking about power and power dynamics the same way Sauron does. And the obscure um, uh, little scholar, or, you know, Dimble, is actually the threat to their program. He's, he's the actual threat. But they, they mistakenly leave him alone because they think that the real threats are these two formidable Christians, right? And one of the things I've wanted to do, one of the things I've wanted to learn from this book is don't be, don't try to be those kinds of, don't try to be the kind of resistance to the bad guys that the bad guys would like to have on their side. Oh, that's, that's, that is wise counsel. <laughs> well, and we see that, um, you know, you think about, um, January, uh, January 6th, you know, we tried to be the, the bad guys that the bad guys would like to have, you know, versus the, 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 the truckers in in Canada, you know, that, that, I mean, those are two ways of going about protesting. One was much more successful than the other. Right. Because if the January, if the January 6th protesters had been in Portland and they'd been leftists and they were burning down a federal building, that would have been okay. Okay? Right. Um, but right. <laughs> basically, when it comes to that kind of protest, uh, the, left, the left is way better at it than we are. That's not our game. We, <laughs> that's, that's, not, that's not how uh, we're supposed to do it. 
Yeah. And, and, and it also makes me think of um, even the, the, um, the Christmas story. Um, and I love the aspect of the Christmas story, the, of, of, um, in fact, I, uh, spoiler alert for those who don't, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm writing a children's book called the secret super soldier baby. It's about, you know, anyway, but it's the idea of, of, of Christ, um, uh, sneaking behind enemy lines in the form of a baby that, uh, the, that, that Caesar would have never saw coming to him. Um, and, and it's the, 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 you know, being able to hide behind, even like you said, Frodo, like you do not know. Um, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's that it, it, it's allowing God to do his work in his own way. Um, that allows us to be successful. Yes. God's way, uh, God's work needs to be done God's way. Yeah. Well said. Absolutely. Um, I want to, um, I want to thank you so much, Doug, for, for your time with, with us today. It's, I've really enjoyed it. Um, maybe give just a, a, one, a one or two minute reason why, why people should read this trilogy and specifically the book that had your strength from your point of view. Why, why would this be a great book to read today? I, I, I believe that it's, it's a great book because it will, it will reveal to the thoughtful reader how insightful C.S. Lewis was about a range of issues across the waterfront. Um, and, and I will say the book starts out kind of slow, right? Um, and it, but it's like taking a, a, a roller coaster ride at six flags or something. You yeah. know, you just, you're ratcheting up the first part and click, 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 but it, it turns into a white knuckle ride. <laughs> yeah, it um, sure does. <laughs> and so it's a really exciting book in its own right, but it's a, it's the kind of book, that will really inform you about how the media works, how, um, how the bad guys manipulate public opinion, how, um, what their ultimate goals are, what they're after. Um, it's, it's just really uh, prophetic. It's, it's, it does what the best kind of prophetic literature does, which is inform you how to live your life now. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's well, that exactly. I, I also, I think about the, um, as you're talking, I, I, I um, think about the, the, uh, the, the little term that they, you know, don't, uh, don't, uh, don't stop. Don't tell me why, why you, or how you left Edgewood, you know, all <laughs> these, you know, how did the, how did the people get, you know, how did God protect the people, you know, and well. it's all these strange little ways that, that, that kept, people from the disaster and it's a right. quite a yeah yeah no I, no I don't want to hear how you left edge stuff yeah. right. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know because yeah you know the 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 ant that got sick that left them away the um you know the 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 pipes froze and they decided to leave somebody somebody just heard a voice that said just go, go. yeah you know yeah. and i think that's a that's a great lesson to us that we need to learn how to be in tune to that you know, even if we don't have second sight like Jane, we all have the ability to to have, uh, um, you know, have those that still small voice talk to us. Right. And he, he ties the book ties in a cataclysm, but it's a satisfying re- resolution. You don't feel like he hauled in a bunch of angelic helicopters and pulled them down to to right. fix everything. 
um, it's it's a very convulsive ending that feels necessary given everything that went before. Absolutely. Yeah, it really does. So I would really encourage everybody read this book. And I'd also encourage people to check out Doug at DougWills.com. We'll put uh, his his information um, in the show notes. Pastor Doug, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my favorite you book. You are listening to And If Love Remains.